Psalms were the uh, worship music and devotional poetry of the day, and so it is good for us that we should not just uh, teach them and analyze them, but that we should also pray them, right, and worship through them. And so uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 84. We're going to be looking more specifically at that now. And what I really want us to zero in on tonight is uh, this phrase from the second half of verse 5. I'll give you a second. It says this, blessed are those in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. And I want to get that sentence into you tonight. I want you to remember it, and I want you to let it shape your life. That idea is going to be the lens through which we look at everything in this psalm, because I think it it encompasses what this psalm is about, and it can serve as a good sort of driving statement for our lives. Okay, so I want us to latch on to that tonight. And so the first thing we need to do is ask, you know, what does that sentence even mean, right? Let's just break it down. So the word blessed basically means happy. You know, this is what God's word is holding up to us as the good life. The ones who have true and lasting well-being, the ones who are blessed, in other words, are the ones who have the highways to Zion in their heart. And by the way, uh, did you know that you are bombarded a thousand times a day with contrary messages? You know, uh, God is not the only one who says, this is the way to blessing. These people are the blessed ones. Uh, This is what the good life really is. There are plenty of other things, people, you know, who whisper that same kind of promise to us. The world, Satan, uh, our own flesh, you know, our own remaining sinful desires, all of those are either trying to get us to buy into some alternative picture of blessing uh, that they are promising is true, and so get us to spend our lives pursuing that, or they're just trying to distract and occupy us long enough so that when we come to the end of our life, we look back and we see that we didn't even get a mile down the road of true blessing with God. And I just want to say right here at the beginning, brothers and sisters, we must do all within our power to not give an inch to the world, Satan, and our own flesh in this area. I mean, God says it here. He says it uh, three other times in this psalm alone. And he says it all throughout the Bible. Blessed is the one who blank. You know, and he fills that blank in with a hundred different things. God has thoroughly revealed to us the way of blessing, the way of true, lasting, unshakable, unbreakable joy and satisfaction for our souls. And listen, he 
has revealed it because he intends for you to have it. He loves you, and he made you for infinite happiness in himself. A lot of other people say quite different things about who is blessed. You know that uh, blessed is the one who does this or, or has that or lives this way or whatever. And I want to submit to you that um, entertaining their alternative promises of blessing, listening to those other voices, is not just like a bad habit, you know, or, or a, um, a mistake or something. No, it is stealing our joy in God, and it is therefore evil. It is a sin in our lives to be killed, not um, negotiated with, not you know, create some kind of balance, killed. God has opened the floodgates of eternal blessing to us And so may we search his word with our lives, cover to cover, and give all we have to pursue God's picture of blessing, not anybody else's. Because look, you get 120 people whose utmost joy is unequivocally in God, they'll change the world. And that's not hyperbole, right? We are here gathered tonight because a group about our size was gathered together 2,000 years ago in the upper room, waiting on God. And he came upon them. So we will not be a people who settles for alternative fleeting promises of blessing. We will discern the lies from the truth. Amen? Amen. Now, if we return to our statement, blessed are those in whose heart are the highways to Zion, and we look at this word Zion, what does that mean? Well, it's got an interesting sort of double meaning, and uh, we see this double meaning throughout the entire psalm, actually. In an earthly sense, it uh, is basically referring to Jerusalem. There is a sort of geographical spot on the map that the name Zion can refer to, And it's also used in a a spiritual, figurative kind of sense to talk about uh, God's kingdom, God's dwelling place, his presence, that kind of thing. And so if we think about the fact that there are apparently highways to this place, to God's presence, that means there are roads down which we can go to get to God, right? There are things and paths that lead us into God's kingdom and power. And it sort of begins to bring in this idea of pilgrimage and travel and uh, journeying, that there's an intended destination and roads that lead you there, which you can walk down, okay? And, of course, the, uh, the fact that these highways to Zion are in a person's heart means that they just can't get enough of them. Uh, traveling to God, going to God in any way possible, diving into the things that lead them into fellowship with God, lead them to uh, knowledge of God, to the presence and power of God, those things are the cry of their heart. 
These people wake up in the morning and they are just floored thinking, another day, you know, another day to pursue God, to walk with God, to go to God in every moment uh, with all my concerns and worship and thanksgiving, uh, another day to take advantage of anything that will lead me more into union with him or, or put me under his loving control. These people have set the goal and destination for their lives. And therefore, for each individual day that makes up what is called their life, right? And that destination, each day, each hour even, is God himself. And there are, of course, uh, particular highways down which we travel to get to an intended destination, So if you're going to Lafayette, you don't get on I-12. People who have the highways to Zion in their heart love going to God. They love the things that bring them to God. They love God's ways. And you know what? When you get around a person like this, you can't help but find yourself being led to God. It's amazing. Just in the way this person talks and lives their life, the way they look at situations, they're always going to God. Uh, At any given moment in the day, odds are you will find them somehow traveling a highway to Zion, somehow. I mean, that's what they love to do. That's what they are consumed with doing. And you can bet as they interact with others, what's in them is going to come out of them. And when you talk to that person, it just has a way of putting God right in front of you. And through that person, by that person, uh, you find yourself, you know, somehow you wind up being led to God in whatever kind of way. And so that this person who loves the highways to Zion ends up becoming a kind of highway to Zion for everyone around them. So... uh, The person who has the highways to Zion in their heart is a person with an end goal in life. They have a place they are looking to end up at, and each day fits into that and and is oriented around going there. Uh, This person wants to live and die traveling further into fellowship with God. They've got their heart set on that. That is the orientation of their life. You and me. You know, where are, where are we traveling? What uh, highways are we going down? And what's at the end of those highways? More importantly, what, what's, what highways are in our hearts? Right? What, what pathways of blessing sit on the seat of our desires and drive our lives? Listen, we want to be these people We want the highways to Zion in our hearts. Because if you set and decide on a destination for your life, a destination for the day, that will determine what you do with this evening, you know, this month, this year. It's totally practical. Having the highways to Zion in our heart, I think it's a similar kind of idea to what God says when uh, he says he's going to put his laws, he's going to write his laws on his people's hearts. And uh, one pastor I was looking at, he puts it like this. He says, 
true freedom, true freedom is loving to do what you ought to do. Everybody, everybody wants to do what they want or love to do. Everybody wants that. That's freedom, right? Doing whatever you want to do, whatever you like doing. And so this pastor I'm referencing says true freedom is doing what you love to do if what you love to do is what you ought to do. And I just want to tweak that a little bit and say that true freedom and blessing is doing what you love to do if what you love to do is what you were made to do. It's saying what you ought to do kind of makes it sound like a chore, right? But in fact, this is what you were made for. Union with God, fellowship with God, uh, a relationship with God that fuels your whole life and heart I mean, that is the fulfillment of what it means to be Olivia, Paul, Aaron. But the problem is that many times what's in our heart, what we want or love to do, are things that kill our souls. And I use dramatic language there on purpose because the things that we a lot of times think of as little sins or distractions that we just kind of settle down with and accept their presence in our lives, listen, those are the most deadly poison to our souls over the long haul. Too often we like doing and therefore pursue things that just kill us and and immobilize us and distract us. I know I do. I'm talking to myself here as much as anyone. God has revealed the way of real blessing to us because he intends for us to be blessed. Blessed in him. He's told us what it is apart from uh, what we a lot of times understand it to be or, or what we try to make it into so that we might come away from those things with him into freedom. I don't know about you guys, but I want to be free. You know, I want the highways to Zion in my heart. Don't you? Now, in the remainder of our time, I I won't be able to look at every verse with you, but I do want to point out three uh, themes that we see in this psalm that show us characteristics which attend those who have the highways to Zion in their heart, or uh, you could say uh, three things that having the highways to Zion in your heart brings with it into your life. Here they are. Uh, People with the highways to Zion in their heart long for God's presence. They lead others to him and they live with his strength. They long for God's presence, lead others to him, and live with his strength. So let me read you uh, the verses in which I find this theme of longing for God's presence. Okay, Uh, one to four. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints with longing for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. 
Even the sparrows find a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And then drop down to verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, uh, what might we say by way of expounding these verses? Uh, Well, he begins, how lovely is your dwelling place, right? And the word for dwelling place there is the same that's used for the tabernacle. Okay, so think of that uh, temporary portable version of the temple they had before the temple was built. And he says, how lovely is your tabernacle? He he doesn't put a ceiling on it. Uh, He leaves it open. How lovely Who knows? Exceedingly lovely. Incomprehensibly lovely. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I uh, very easily slip into thinking of the tabernacle system and the sacrifices and all that as a burden, you know, that the Israelites had to endure, (laughs) not something that was desirable at all. It must have been a pretty bloody place. You know, with reminders of sin everywhere. But here, maybe we can get something of how the ones who were actually there thought of it. You know, here, the the psalmist is talking about how awesome it is and how he wants to be there. And so, clearly, this wasn't just some kind of like dark, solemn place of somber conviction all the time. For sure, that, I mean, that was there, right? But it's this place of bright hope and celebration and glad worship for them. I mean, this God had chosen to enter into a relationship with them. Uh, He delivered them out of slavery and called them his chosen possession. And as a result, it was their joy to obey his commands about offering their best animals you know, to celebrate the atonement and reconciliation they had with this God, uh, to celebrate the feasts that he instituted so they could remember his faithfulness and his mighty works. After receiving such goodness, such grace from this God, how could they not want to do all that? This was a place true Jews wanted to be and looked forward to. How much more Should this be true of us who have experienced in fullness the deliverance concerning which theirs was but a sign or symbol? But how much more should we on this side of the cross shout verse 2 from the rooftops? It says, my soul longs, yes, faints with longing for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh, you know, body and soul All of me singing, shouting, dancing, crying out for joy to the living God. His whole life is used to sing that song of joy and and faints with longing. It's this idea that he might pass out or die if he doesn't get there soon. Like water in the desert are the courts of the Lord to his soul. And, uh, you know, the courts... of the Lord can be talking about either uh, the, the tabernacle grounds or just more broadly of God's presence, God's abode. 
And then he goes on in verse 3 talking about these birds. He says, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. And I couldn't understand this at first, but if you start to picture it, it kind of begins to make sense. So you could imagine the author on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he's approaching the tabernacle, and he sees these birds who'd made their nests in the trees surrounding the camps of the priests, and they're just swooping freely in and out of the tabernacle grounds, resting wherever they like, right next to God Almighty's presence. They're just gathering crumbs, doing whatever birds do. He's envious of them, you know, because he's saying, look, I'm dying here. I'm I'm fainting with longing for the courts of the Lord. And they just basically live there. Uh, He's saying, how I wish I could be like one of them. They make their homes. They raise their kids, right? Lay their young. They just freely live out all their days, essentially in God, in his manifest presence. And so he says, verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Blessed are those who move in with God, who have God move into them. Blessed are those to whom God says, welcome home. You belong here in my presence. Who are adopted into his eternal household and who live there, right? Like the verse says, blessed are those who dwell The people are the ones doing the action of dwelling here. This is an active, uh, daily, observable reality in their lives. And so it's no wonder that he says uh, they go about life ever singing his praise. Listen, we don't want to be just frequent visitors of God or or, uh, close acquaintances. There's no blessing there, okay? He says, blessed are those who dwell, who take the plunge, who move in with God, who live with him all day. And uh, why is this such a desirable thing to be sought after and longed for? Verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Appreciate how big of a statement that is for a second. One day with him, even a day of being a doorkeeper, I mean, think of what a doorkeeper does. It's their job to stand outside the gate all day. They don't even get to go in. They stand to the threshold. And he says, even that, even standing just outside God's house, not even going in, is better than a thousand days elsewhere doing whatever you can imagine. God is that glorious and splendid and captivating and satisfying. God's courts, it's this place where God is the center where sinners were reconciled to him through his forgiveness, where his greatness is cherished. I mean, he's the reason that everyone's there, right? Where God is all. 
place where all that is happening? Better than a thousand days anywhere else, hands down. Do we believe that? You know, when you stop to kind of meditate on it, we should ask ourselves, if I believed this verse to the core and it shaped my whole life, how might things be different than they are now? What would stay the same? What would I do more of? What would I do less of? Like I said, when you stop to think about it, this verse is cause for both praise and confession, right? And then, uh, by the way, right after this, in verse 11, he says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows grace and glory. Try spending a thousand days without the sun. You would die. Uh, Everything would die. That would just be asking for death. So it is for those who live apart from God. Or what about a thousand days with no shield in this life? You would just be a pushover for Satan, for your own sinful desires. I mean, there would just be no competition. You know, you would be won over by sin. I would be won over by sin with no shield? Come on. Or what about a thousand days with no grace from God? We'd be hopeless. You see, the psalmist realizes that God is who we were all made to enjoy. And he is a good that will last us throughout the ages, people. <laughs> Wickedness, it overpromises and underdelivers. It's only good for the moment. But things that are only good for the moment are of no real use for eternal beings, right? It's almost just irrelevant to us. <laughs> I mean, look around. Look at the person you're sitting next to. Think about this for a second. Every one of us, every one of you, will live forever. You will outlive any mountain range or star or galaxy. And so a good that only lasts for the moment just doesn't do much for me, you know? Not going to be of a lot of use in 10,000 years. So I'm not going to build my life on that. The people who have the highways to Zion in their heart long for God's presence. That's where they're headed. That's what they're seeking. That's where they live. And the second point is this idea that people who have the highways to Zion in their heart not only long for God's presence, but they lead others to him. And we touched on this some earlier, so I won't spend too much time on it here. But I do just want to look together at one verse, uh, verse 6. It says, as they go through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of refreshing springs. The autumn rain also covers it with pools. So where there is brokenness and grief 
and hopelessness and sorrow, people with the highways to Zion in their hearts bring light and love and companionship. Their presence and activity in the midst of a situation can turn a valley of weeping into a place of refreshing springs. Now, how, how in the world can that be true? Well, think about where their face is set. You know, think about where the direction of their life is pointing. Think about where they live, who they live with. It's in Zion. Their home is with God, right? And so you can't even be around this person without, in some measure, also being around God. Him, his word, his promises, his mercy are just the air they breathe. It's like someone from England or Australia. You know, they're, they're speaking the same language as you, clear as day. But every word is just ringing with the sound of their homeland. You're not going to mistake them for being from somewhere else. And so they can bring goodness and comfort and peace into the valley of weeping because in everything they are going to Zion. Right? And Zion is the place where all the goodness and comfort and peace that exists is. You're not going to find it anywhere else. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, uh, good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. See, they are not a sort of prizes which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? And he goes on to say, uh, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. As people with the highways to Zion in their hearts have been infected, like he says, uh, with a love for Jesus that just makes them unable to shut up about him. You know, he is life to them. I mean, uh, they are soaked through with the presence of God. And if you get close to them, you can bet you're going to get splashed. Lewis said, if you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you have to get into the thing that has them. Well, that's where they're set. And so someone like that, with the praises of God always on their lips, coming into the valley of weeping, there's going to be some refreshment happening. You know, there's going to be life brought into the barren places. And so like we said earlier, people with the highways to Zion in their heart end up becoming a highway to Zion themselves for whoever comes in contact with them. They lead others, they show other people to their treasure who is 
God himself. And uh, my last point is that these people live with God's strength. They live with his strength. Let me read you the verses where I see this. It's uh, the first half of verse 5 and then verse 7. So he says, uh, Blessed are those whose strength is in you. And then they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now what does it mean to have your strength in the Lord? At least one thing that I think it means is this. Uh, To have my strength in God is to have a sense flowing from my relationship with him and who he is to me that I can face anything. So it's to have a sense that you can face anything in life and that sense is a result of, is born out of your relationship with God and who he is to you. So if I were to say to my wife or one of my really good friends, I find such strength in you. What I'm saying is uh, the nature of that relationship, the way we speak and interact with one another, their presence in my life gives to me a sort of buoyancy and stability in life through which I don't get tossed around by whatever comes my way. The way that relationship shapes my life and what it adds to my life frees me from worry and fear and causes me to be strengthened. And, and how much more for us with the God of the universe looking upon you, looking upon us with love and delight through Jesus. Blessed are those whose strength in life, whose strength of life that which makes you able to weather any storm is in the Lord and who he is to you. And then we, uh, we come to what I see as problem verses. So he says they go from strength to strength. And, and there's a similar kind of idea in verse 11. It says, uh, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, uh, who in here says... Yep, that's my life. Strength to strength to strength. No weakness here. Just paradise. Anybody? I I didn't think so. You see, the problem is, doesn't our experience in life prove these verses wrong? Our circumstances, the cards we're dealt, uh, many times they don't feel like, they don't seem like they're building us up, right? Seem like they're threatening to, threatening to tear us down, you know, to frustrate us, to uh, weaken us and, and extinguish our hope. Things are not always good. Far from it. And so what, is God's word just naive? No. In fact, what we find throughout the Bible is that God oftentimes has a very different kind of strength in mind than what you and I thought of. You see it in how he chose to set his heart on Israel even though they were a tiny, powerless nation. You see it in how he anointed David as king over Israel even though he was just a shepherd boy. 
You see it in how Jesus chose a ragtag group of rejects to be his 12 closest followers. You see it most clearly in the fact that his greatest victory was dying on a cross like a criminal in the place of people who really deserved it, like you and me. If anyone went from strength to strength in life, it was Jesus, and his life ended with what looked to everyone like the greatest defeat of all time. And so no, this is not a strength that leads to you being more in control or or things getting easier and easier, things going your way. But listen, God is offering you something far better than that, brothers and sisters. And I think you can uh, glimpse something of it in this section from a book called The Insanity of God. It's a little long, bear with me. Um, The author, he traveled the world collecting these stories from Christians who'd been persecuted for their faith. And he says this, I remembered how my first Chinese contacts back in southern China had explained the government's primary motivation for persecuting believers. It was not that the communists opposed or even cared about what Jesus taught his followers. The communists were not concerned with what Christians believed. Their concern was something quite different. Any commitment to something or someone other than the state was considered a serious threat to government authority and control. What they cared most about was political allegiance. And they understood clearly the threat from those who declared the lordship of Christ a lordship that would not be shared with the state or with any other power. And so I asked the house church leaders whether, when, and how the oppressed could truly threaten a totalitarian oppressor. They offered this scenario in response. The security police regularly harass a believer who owns the property where a house church meets. The police say, you have got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street. Then the property owner will probably respond, do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, then you need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. The security police will not know what to make of that answer, so they will say, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the, church, uh, the house church leaders will declare, then we will be free to trust God for shelter as well as for our daily bread. If you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors will tell them. Well, then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing, the believers will respond. And then we will put you in prison, the police will threaten. By now, the believer's response is almost predictable. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives to set them free. We will be free to plant churches in prison. If you try to do that, we will kill you. And with utter consistency, the house church believers will reply, then then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. 
That is the strength of God at work in a person. Were their lives getting easier and better? No, in fact, they were getting worse. Going from having their house confiscated to uh, homelessness, to prison, to threats of death. But were they going from strength to strength to strength? Absolutely. Was any good thing from their perspective being withheld from them? Not at all. In fact, you'd almost think the police were doing them a favor. As the threats got worse, they were becoming more and more free to depend on Jesus, to run to him and serve him. Listen, the strength God wants to give you is not one that will make you what this world calls impressive. If you want that, you will have to go elsewhere. God wants to give you a strength that will do far better than that, that will actually satisfy your soul and empower you to be who you were made to be. His strength will cause the allurements of sin and materialism and self to fall away from before your eyes until all that's left is Jesus. And then you will be free. This is a strength that will make you free to live and die for Jesus. And it comes by making him our all. By having the highways to Zion in our hearts. So, in closing, uh, verse 12, he says, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you! Exclamation point. Like, what a perfect conclusion. Have you trusted in him? Have you surrendered your life and everything to Jesus? It says the blessing of all that we've talked about tonight is for those who trust him. And if you've never come to him to give your life and receive this gift, then God Almighty is giving you the chance tonight to put your trust in Jesus, to have all your sins forgiven, to be changed from the inside out and to start a new eternal life with him. Will you ask him to do that? Will you cry out to him tonight and ask him to do that in your life? And for those of us who are living with Jesus, y'all, let's give everything to have the highways to Zion in our hearts and live this kind of life in God together. Let's continue the dialogue about what this really means for our lives. Seriously. Let's all stand together as the band comes back up. We're going to have a time of uh, response to God's word and how he's been moving in our midst um, throughout our time together tonight and We're going to sing a few songs. You can sing. You can 
sit and pray. You can come down to the front here and kneel and pray if you'd like. Uh, We have a station here where you can write out prayer requests. You can offer your financial um, offerings of worship to God's work through this church there. Uh, Taylor's going to be serving communion, and it's the kind where you come and you tear off the bread and you dip it in the juice, and he says, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. So however the Spirit is leading you to respond, do that. And let me pray for us as we transition into this time. Lord, here we are before you. Before you and your word. You know that we can't produce this kind of joy in you on our own. You know we we can't just put the highways to Zion in our hearts by an act of will. And so we wait on you. Holy Spirit, we wait on you. I ask you to pour out your spirit on this people in a special way right now as we respond to your word, Lord. Incline every heart to you. Do this in us, God. Put the highways to Zion in our hearts. Set us free to be controlled by your love and nothing else. Have your way with us now in these moments. And let each person meet with you in the ways they need and receive this word into their heart. You are the ultimate highway to Zion for all of us. By your life, death, and resurrection, we are reconciled to our God, to our Maker. Make us like you, Lord.